You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Episode 66, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Chris Held, an ophthalmologist in private practice in San Antonio, Texas. She is also the relatively new president of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Dr. Held has been in practice for many years, but practices in a state that does not allow medications to be dispensed outside of pharmacies like it is in 44 states and the District of Columbia. By dispensing these medications at often 10% off of the cost of retail meds, patients could save a lot of money and get better care. She and another Texas physician are suing the state of Texas with the aid of the Institute for Justice. Show notes for the episode can be found at theparadox.com 066. You can find links for many ways to find Dr. Held and past episodes that we refer to in the show. I'd also like to thank Brian Mooney, who is a new patron of the show. Thank you so much for your support and for my other patrons. If you haven't already, please leave a written review of the show on your favorite podcast player. But without further ado, Dr. Chris Held and the fight to dispense medications in doctor's offices. Enjoy. Well, welcome. I'm here with Dr. Chris Held. Dr. Held, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I really wanted to get, have you on. I, you know, as people always ask me, how do you find guests? And some find me, uh, but I think ordinarily it's just me sort of combing through things or something comes up that I find of interest in, uh, we were just speaking just a moment ago, that I've been a contributor to the Institute for Justice, which is not really a medical uh, organization at all. It's a legal organization that fights for economic liberties. And that's how you came onto my radar. So I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Before we talk about sort of the specifics of it, I'd like you just to describe basically what, what your practice is, where you're located, and sort of, I guess, how that and maybe how that's changed since you first came out of uh, your residency. Okay, great. Certainly. Well, I'm from San Antonio, Texas, and I'm an ophthalmologist and ophthalmic surgeon. And so when I first came out of my residency, I stayed on faculty at the medical school 
I, um, I loved um, academic medicine. My father actually was the chairman of neurosurgery at our medical school in San Antonio for nearly 30 years. So I kind of had it in my blood to teach, uh, see patients, kind of the, you know, the three-pronged stool, right. stay in academic medicine. I did that for five years, but then I went into private practice. And um, for, you know, over 20 years, I just saw patients, did cataract surgery, trauma. You know, when I was um, at the medical school, I was in charge of our county clinic downtown. So we took care of all of our patients from across San Antonio. And then when I went into practice, was able to expand that into um, a broader um, group of patients. But five years ago, uh, now, I guess it's four years ago now, I think you may find this interesting, but I went completely third party free. Um, up until that point, I thought it was really important to be on every single insurance plan. I thought right. that yeah. was what was helping my patients. I was doing that for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I finally came to my senses and realized that suddenly I was not, um, the, the, the patient-physician relationship had been violated by multiple levels of third party and that came to me almost as an epiphany. So I opted out of everything, including Medicare. And I am absolutely loving serving my patients directly um, and not having to deal with so many delays and denials and really nonsense things that third parties throw in between the doctor and the, and the patients. And so um, that's been a, a really a great blessing. Um, so I appreciate the opportunity to be on with you and, um, talk about things that we can do to help our patients. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I think I, I'm guessing I have about half my patients are, are patients. Half of the people who listen to the show are physicians, about half are the lay public. And so I've talked a number of times about third party payers and, you know, whether you're a government or commercial payer, and they're the sort of that other party that that's controlling decisions making uh, in some ways, because there's the cost is shielded from both the patient and the physician. And so there's, you know, no check on sort of scarcity, <laughs> how much mm-hmm. resources we're using. But likewise, your what you can and can't do is dictated by someone who has, eh, we'll say not a vested interest in sort of your, in your health uh, or the relationship between the patient and the physician. But if you're a, phys- if you're a specialist, I mean, I'm an anesthesiologist and if, and I know a number of surgeons if I told them, hey, why don't you give up all your third-party payers, especially someone like you, where if cataracts are, I mean, the Medicare population is probably what, like right. 95% of cataracts probably, uh, or that yeah, age, yeah. people would say you're crazy because who would ever go, I mean, you would no, have no business. You'd never be able to do a cataract surgery because, you know, it's all Medicare. So so I'm sure you've had that, that question bunch. What's your answer to that? Yeah, and, and the irony is um, I... See, I'm the one who ends up seeing the uninsured, you know, the patients that are 64 and under and can't afford the onerous premiums and the high deductibles and can't get in, you know, access to coverage is is access to a waiting line is not getting your surgery done. Right. So my practice is actually full. Um, (laughs) I'm, I'm so happy. I have a wonderful surgery schedule. My Medicare patients come to me. Um, we, you know, they, my patients, it's really neat. My patients value the relationship that we have developed over the last 20 plus years. It's important to us. I know them, they know me, and there's that trust. And so 
I went to the surgery center that I use and we negotiated a very fair price for direct care patients. And then for the Medicare patients at the surgery center, they can use their um, Medicare at the surgery center. But then for my fee, that's included, um, that, that's separate. And that's something that's very, very affordable. Okay. And I love it. And so the, and People so can the, do it. Right. surgeons can do it. And the, it, it obviously requires a little bit of legwork on your end in the sense that you have to negotiate these things with the surgery centers and sort of figure this stuff out ahead, ahead of script, which I mean, for most businesses, of course, they're going to have to figure these things out ahead of time. They're not just, you can't just assume, I guess, you know, the way it works now is just someone else takes care of it for you, but it may not be to your advantage oh, or the patient's advantage, you know, right? You, it isn't. And you really, you know, people always say, oh, well, you can do that because you're in a certain area of town. Absolutely not. Yeah, I do have some patients that have um, enough resources that they don't have to worry about it. But I, I'm, as I said, I'm the one who sees the people that, that are uninsured now yeah, and can't right. afford, underinsured, uninsured. And so that is a, a great um, source of, it's just a great sort of source of blessing and satisfaction to me. And I, I had to come up with my numbers by, um, you know, looking at my highs and my lows, I had to become extremely aware of my financial situation. And by really kind of kicking out all third party, I was really able to trim my overhead um, substantially, just getting rid of my billing company initially took 8% off the top, I could lower my fees 8% off the top. Yeah. And I mean, if you just work at it, you can, you, the, the big myth is that people need insurance to be able to get medical care. And that's not true. Um, the, the, the prices are so fake and high and there's so many perverse incentives to make the cost high. The actual cost is low. And that's what we need to do is we need to have a paradigm shift that gets rid of all of these cost drivers that are not addressed and have a trimmed down direct system. And we can buy our medical care. Um, you know, you, I always tease that you can have eye surgery for less than getting your iPhone. And, um, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, it, it's amazing. And, and that's what strikes me about, that's what really got me going on the um, office dispense. You know, I'm able to see patients who don't have insurance. I'm able to even now see Medicaid patients, um, Medicare patients that could not come to me before. You know, if you're an, an in-network uh, Medicare provider, uh, a um, Medicare patient who is in an HMO that you are not in cannot see you. And if you even want to see them for free, that's fraud. But it opted out of Medicare and not in Medicaid, I can see these patients. And if I choose to provide true charity, which I really believe is part of any good, uh, compassionate uh, medical system, I can provide that. But it doesn't help me to see the patient for free or agree to operate on them for free, even when I choose for those very special, wonderful patients, if I cannot, if they can't afford their medications. Yeah. And so this is what brought me to the reality that I need to be able to, you know, if, if, the, if the state of Texas licensed me to go in the operating room and cut someone's eye open <laughs> and operate on it, I should think that I would be able to hand them a bottle of glaucoma drops. And, you know, we as physicians are the ones that write the prescriptions. We, we, we examine the patient. We diagnose them. We determine their treatment. We write the prescriptions and we want them to have that medication. I, I feel that we are duly licensed, capable, and trained to hand them the medication that we want them to have. And in fact, our current system um, makes it increasingly difficult for their patients to get their medications 
And things have changed, you know, over the last many years. And in the current climate, with all of these third-party um, intermediaries that we're talking about, it's becoming increasingly difficult for patients to get their medications. And, you know, 45 states and D.C. allow physician dispense. The only ones that do not are New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, Montana, Utah, and surprisingly, Texas. You know, you would think when states like Vermont and California and Hawaii and, you know, all these other states allow Dr. Dispense. You would certainly think Texas would, but no, they don't. And, and that was back in um, the early 80s. They just suddenly, the, the pharmacy board, uh, something in the Texas legislature happened and they just banned the, up until that point, traditional practice of physicians dispensing medication to their patients. Right. Well, I mean, I think you touched upon it right there. Something happened, right? And I think uh, it doesn't really matter what the state is. If people think it's a conservative state, a liberal state, or some in-between sort of political state, the uh, the restrictions of scope of practice, the licensing, the sort of what people can and can't do is almost random um, f- throughout the country, whether you look at certificate of need laws, which I discussed earlier uh, in an earlier episode, some places allow imaging centers, some don't. Some allow surgery centers, some don't. Some allow, you know, I mean, it's totally random as sort of what sort of laws and, it really are, is. and it's a hodgepodge. I mean, it's, some, it's something sort of beautiful about the country and that you have this hodgepodge of rules. You can hopefully mm-hmm. see, hey, it works really well at the state. We should do it here. Uh, exactly. But, you you know, the problem is if you're happy to be in that state, <laughs> it doesn't have exit. You're, you're, you're stuck, right? right? Yeah. And, you know, we, we are a republic. And that's what's really cool about it, is that every state is different. And this does fall under state law and our state constitution. And that's what's really neat about Institute for Justice is that they are, as you stated, um, you know, defenders of economic freedom. And um, at the state level, what we can do, and when we look at the Texas Constitution, actually what's going on with this ban is unconstitutional because it's it's really nonsensical um, and irrational in one sense, and we can talk about that. And then in the other sense, um, it's very protectionist of pharmacy. Sure. And so it's, it's something that I'm really happy that they're they're helping me and Dr. Michael Garrett, who's a, a family practice direct patient care doctor, um, try to get this ability to better take care of our patients. Yeah. And and I guess just to back up a little bit, first of all, you are living in a double republic, right? Is Texas technically a republic as well? <laughs> That's right. Exactly. I think our constitution does say we, we reserve the right to go back. Right. So you're in the Republic <laughs> of Texas, in the Republic of the United States. Uh, but to back up a little bit to, I think, set the table for our listeners, who are kind of wondering what we're talking about when you say dispensing. I think uh, it's important to think that most physicians you think of as writing prescriptions, they you take your prescription, you go to a pharmacy, and then you get your medication, and that's where it's dispensed. Uh, this obviously are for prescription medications, things that are over-the-counter, you can they can be dispensed without a license, or, you know, well, I suppose maybe there's a license for grocery stores or something, but... Um, so what we're talking about is that most states, as you mentioned, 45 states or 44 states in, the, in D.C., allow physicians to dispense medication to their office. Now, most physicians' offices don't dispense many medications. You may get refills or um, like uh, samples. And so that's mm-hmm. generally where people get samples of things because uh, not as much anymore because drug uh, pharmaceutical reps are not allowed in offices very much anymore. There's uh, So there's less opportunity to get that for patients. But... 
so there are certain states, and certainly when we talked about direct primary care, I've mentioned this in numerous episodes in the past, and uh, one of the things, the advantages of the direct primary care is, you know, they can oftentimes dispense medications. They're charging wholesale prices usually, and so it's a lot cheaper alternative. And so what you are looking to do, and this um, and the other physician who's a family doc, are looking to yeah. basically have that same right to dispense medications because, as you pointed out, you control every other part of every other part of the process. The only difference is, like, can you hand them a bottle of pills or a bottle of eye drops, right? Right. And and yeah. and so, why don't you go into, uh, I guess, exactly what the barriers are to getting this law, or I guess the legal challenges? Do you feel like uh, there's a support with the legislature? You know, the 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 legal system in Texas. Kind of go through sort of what the plans are for your. Okay, I will. And, you know, we, this all started, um, you know, every, the Texas legislature meets every two years and we tried to go through legislative channels. So earlier this year, um, we had two bills um, and, you know, the last legislative session two years ago, we have these recurring bills every two years, every two years, every two years, and they, they won't even bring them out of committee. So in March, um, I testified before our public health committee. And um, we really thought, oh, gosh, this is going to get out of committee. Well, they didn't bring it to, to would not bring it out of committee. We really felt that we had uh, the votes on the committee, but they would not bring it out to the floor for a vote. And we're just stymied again. So this is what happened. Right. So that's why we've had to take, um, take this on to um, a legal challenge. But, you know, um, Eric, since um, – Really, if you think about what's happened to pharmaceutical costs, you know, since the 1970s, they have gone up, listen to this, 13,000%. Is that a lot? And so, oh, can you imagine? (laughs) And um, I know it. In 1980, when Texas outlawed physician dispense, um, the drug expenditures in the U.S. were about $12 billion. In 2019, they're $360 billion. And right now what's happened is these third parties, you know, there's three huge companies, CVS Caremark, Express Scripts, and OptumRx, now control over the 70% of all prescriptions dispensed in the U.S. And so what's happened is, you know, we're starting to get drug shortages. And I know you see this in the OR as anesthesiologists. I mean, mm-hmm. we have had shortages of saline. So we're having drug shortages from antibiotics to insulin. Um, you know, they're having to have compounding pharmacies sprout up. Um, they're having to have generics made in China. And, you know, recently we've had many uh, medications have to be recalled because of contamination. And, you know, in Dallas, um, there was a, an ophthalmology group that was having compounded medications they were injecting to the eye. And, and many patients even suffered with blindness. And, you know, so these are suboptimal ways to dealing with these these drug company shortages. So what's happened is at the same time that all these costs have gone up, the premiums are up, the deductibles are up, you know, there's this whole new class of people uninsured and without, uh, with pre-existing conditions. So we've got to be able to legally get these meds to our patients. And shockingly, one out of four Americans is having difficult afford, difficulty affording their meds. You think, oh, well, everybody's got coverage. No, they don't. And even those who have coverage, one out of four can't get their meds. And there was a study in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2014 that showed, listen to this, 31% of primary care prescriptions are never filled. 31%. And 67% who didn't fill them said cost was the problem. 
Sure. Well, if all we're asking for, we're not asking for any scheduled drugs, you know, no opioids, nothing like that. We are asking to dispense antibiotics, you know, glaucoma drugs, statins, hypersensitive drugs, all the things that people are on chronically and use at the point that we prescribe them when they leave the office, they can leave with their medications at hand in a fair cost. We aren't wanting to make a profit on this. We want to just cover our overhead, get them the best prices drugs they can. We know they've got them. And we, so therefore we know they're going to be taking them. And you know, the cost of non-adherence to treatment is so expensive. You know, someone comes in, they can't afford their glaucoma meds. They, they lose vision. Yeah. Not only do they lose their job. And, you know, if you think of the lost productivity, the sickness, you people don't have their insulin. They ration their insulin. They end up in the hospital with diabetic ketoacidosis. Look at the cost of that. So we, this, if you think about the sensical nature of this, you know, my surgical patients were ending up, Eric, paying more for their post-op eye drops than the surgery itself. I have... <laughs> um, I have receipts from one of my patients paid $579.69 for three small bottles of eye drops. And so I spend as much time telling them how to use coupons and gets rebates and which pharmacy to go to and, you know, prior authorizations and delays and denials and callbacks. And the cost is onerous. The time is onerous. And they can still do that. We're not trying to take away their choice to use their pharmacy, to use their insurance. We are just trying to expand their choices, give them the option. And we're really not trying to compete with pharmacists. We're trying to provide care to the 31% that aren't getting the care. Sure. And, you know, kind of the irony of it is the pharmacy board, especially the independent pharmacists and, and the, you know, you can imagine the, the pushback that we face, um, we they're they're actually set being their own worst enemy because when I'm going to dispense meds from my office for no profit, look what they're now competing against, <laughs> no profit. Yeah, right. So uh, you know it's kind of silly in that way, but um, one of the things that really bothers me about it is that they they claim and their defense is that there's a safety issue. Mm-hmm. And there's not a safety issue. There's no proof of that. There's no evidence of that. In fact, there's evidence that there's less visits to the ER and urgent care with physician dispense. And it only makes sense. I mean, we're the one diagnosing the patient, treating the patient. We're the captain of the ship. We take ultimate responsibility for any complications, any problems. We're the ones that treat them for any anaphylactic shock, any problems. So, you know, that argument is what they make to the Texas legislators all the time. And it's actually a non-argument. And, you know, the other thing is then the pharmacist, they'll say to me, well, then let us, um, let, if you're going to dispense in your office, then let us diagnose and treat in, in the pharmacy, in CVS. Let us strep, do the, you know, swab the throats and prescribe the penicillin. And, mm-hmm. and my answer is always, what are you going to do when that patient has anaphylactic shock? And it will happen. Do you have hospital privileges? No. And, and see, you know, if you think you're going to treat glaucoma and prescribe my patients or treat a red eye, how are you going to diagnose whether that drop worked? Are you going to check pressures in the office? How are you going to diagnose whether that's herpetic keratitis or a fungal ulcer? Or how are you going to diagnose and treat 
you know, so they're asking for apples when what we need is oranges. So a lot of the arguments and then the, the counter arguments that we're seeing are really nonsensical. But one of the things we did was, okay, so the law um, says that in Texas, um, and this is where the nonsense comes in, we are legally able to dispense 72 hours worth of medications. We're right. able to legally do it in rural areas. So I'm a better dispenser in a rural area than I am in my office. I'm better dispenser with 72 hours and I can give samples. Um, so that's kind of silly. That's, that's kind of the irrational part of it. And then the other part of it is that you can't do it if you're 15 miles from a pharmacy. So we got a map and in Texas, <laughs> we have 29 million people and we have 65,000 doctors. So we circled every pharmacy and we put the 15 mile radius and out of the 65,000 doctors serving 29 million people, guess how many doctors can dispense? Seven. Yep. <laughs> seven or eight. And oh, guess really? how many do? <laughs> yeah, seven or eight. It's eight. I think it's eight. And it's three, three, and three choose two. Yeah. So we now have three physicians in very remote rural areas that are able to do this legally. And so that's where the protectionist issue comes in. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, think about, so what I'm having to do back to what I was saying about my patients and their surgery, you know, Medicare now pays an ophthalmologist $550 coming up to do the cataract surgery and my patient, and that's including three months post-op care. And my uh -huh. patient had to pay $579 for the drops. Who do you think <laughs> is calling the shots in this? Maybe, maybe the pharmacy and the pharmaceutical benefit managers. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's the doctors. And you know, the sad thing, my father who's a physician talks to his, his, his retired friends. And the, a lot of people think that physicians are making money off of what we prescribe. This is a huge myth. It's false. And that needs to go away. And I think I'm getting very tired of these third parties projecting all of their bad uh, behavior onto us yeah. and demonizing us. We love our patients. And that's what I care about. I care about Hippocratic medicine. I care about my patients. So right now in Texas, I'm having to have my patients... Uh, order compounded drops from California for $40 that get mailed to their home. So Texas is losing the business. Yeah. To California. And yeah, to California. <laughs> so, you know, we could solve this problem, but um, you know, we, I can buy Timoptic Timolol eye drops in my office for $2 and 31 cents from Andamed's and another glaucoma drop called Bermonidine for $18. Well, I had a patient that was charged $77 for that at Walmart. Yeah. You know, I can get the most commonly prescribed antibiotics to my patients for 20 cents a pill. Uh, they can be charged $800 for dry eye drops. And that same California company I was telling you about will send it to them for $50. So, um, you know, I need to be able to, to get my patients their meds at a reasonable cost. And wouldn't just think about the convenience. If your, your grandmother comes in and she needs her drops, wouldn't it be easier to just she has her exam, she gets her drops, gets ready for surgery or has her glaucoma drops. And then you take her home. You don't yeah. have to wait at the pharmacy. Um, it, it, you know, you're not missing work, just the resources and just the convenience. You know, my, my daughter, who's a physician, um, has a little girl who got had an ear infection. Well, so she has to take off work, get the prescription, um, written the diagnosis, and then she has to drop it off weight. The poor little girl has to go without antibiotics while my daughter goes back to work all day. Yeah. Crying. And until she can get that. Whereas the pediatrician could have done it 
at the office for 10 bucks. And think about it, even your OB-GYN. Think about all the women that could go to their OB-GYN and get their year's worth of birth control pills at the time they're examined, you know, for $20. Think about, you know, the public health implications of this are incredible. And there's no reason that they're not doing it except for, you know, what do you think? <laughs> well, right. And I think I think it's important to, to point out that when it comes to state legislation, it's, uh, you know, I you hate using the, the buggy boo, the term lobbyists, uh, but essentially it's when you have large large interests that are that have a lot of financial st- at stake. Uh, you know, physicians are among those as well. You know, there's definitely restrictions that res- that physicians place on uh, on various things to try and prevent entrance entries to the market as well. But in this case, there's no question that the lobbying the lobbying board that you're facing is are the pharmaceutical companies. And, well, I should say the pharmacists, right? Because they're the ones mm-hmm. who, even if you were whether you're making a profit or not, I mean, it, it doesn't matter to them. The fact that they have another person entering the market is competition for them and you're taking away potential customers. Uh, and, and, uh, and what's always surprised me more is actually that how inexpensive sometimes it is to, to lobby at the state level. It's not, it's not like millions of dollars. Like most people think, I mean, it's that much when you go to the federal government, but when you're doing it at the, the state level, it's actually thousands of dollars, which is a lot more for like one individual. Like if you were to try and lobby on right. your own behalf, you don't have right. $50,000 you can drop. Um, you know, we don't, we, as physicians, we're working. In fact, it costs yeah. us when I have to cancel patients or surgery or take time off to go up to Austin, you know, I'm spending my gas, I'm spending my oh, time sure. and I have yeah. overhead, I'm losing money. I'm actually paying to go and tell them. And interestingly, the chairman of the public health committee, um, where we presented on the house side and there were two bills, there's Matt Shaheen, who's up around Dallas. And then we even had Dr. Oliverson, you know, Texas medical association had a bill. Yeah. And, and, and Dr. Alderson. And so when I was presenting, the, the chairman of the committee, um, uh, Chairwoman Synthronia Thompson, was, you know, you could tell she had glaucoma. She said, are you kidding? You can get drops for that? My goodness. <laughs> and I was thought, this is going to be a slam dunk. Yeah. And then lo and behold, no, it did nope. not come out of committee once again. And she's yeah. been that, you know, in, she's been in the Texas House for 30 years. And it just, it's not going to come out. And that's why we had to do this. It's the last thing. I want to do is, is, you know, sue my beloved state of Texas, but I'm doing this for Texas because, uh, and, and, you know, the Texas medical board is, um, all about patient safety and helping the patient in our constitution. I'm doing this for our patients. I mean, I'm a patient. We're all patients. Oh yeah. Right. At some point you may have to be buying those drugs yourself. Uh, you know, it's interesting. And I've, there've been a lot of stories recently about, uh, new competitors to the, um, to the, I guess you'd say the physician market or whatever, where you have Walmart opening clinics, CVS, certainly mm-hmm. all these pharmacies are opening, usually staffed by nurse practitioners or PAs. Or, right. um, uh, but what's really interesting about it, and I just until now it didn't really hit me, is that there's definitely going to be savings for patients by going to these clinics, way cheaper than going to the physician's office for the most part. However, just like any large medical system where you go and you may just pay a small copay, you are referred and then all your laboratory, all your imaging and everything it happens within the system. And it's almost like you go into the restaurant and you just, you order, you know, a hamburger and they say, would you like fries and a drink with that? I go, oh, okay, sure. I'll just make it a value. And, and that's actually where they make all their profit, right? On the other sort of the peripheral, the peripheral things. And it's almost like reverse for the CBS. They almost have bring you in. You can have a relatively inexpensive exam. And yet they they know you're going to buy your pharmaceuticals from them, which is 
significantly marked up and that's where they, you know, they can make a huge margin on. And it's almost like they kind of draw you in with a low price to start with, but then hit you with all the, <laughs> the stuff later. Uh, Absolutely. Well, and they, when you think about, you know, earlier, you heard me mention only three major pharmaceutical benefit managers that control 70, right. 80% of the prescription writing. And this is, to, this is to the tune of $250 billion a year. They don't want to lose that. There is a tremendous amount of money involved in determining what medications get on formularies and uh, how much patients are going to pay. And, you know, when patients, the other thing, there's so many issues that this ties into transparency. You know, once you've met your deductible or if you have a drug plan or, you know, if you know you can go there and just pay $30, you don't care if in the meantime, $500 are getting laundered around. So, I mean, by doing this, we could, we could have transparency for the patients and save a lot of this money that's getting built around in, in the, in the system. And, you know, it's really interesting in Texas. One of our really good friends, jo- Dr. Josh Umbear, and I bet you've had Josh on. I um, haven't, and it's uh, it's it's something that will need to be in the works. <laughs> Everyone says, yeah, yeah, have him on. I know I would do it at some point with Atlas MD, yes. Yeah, he's great. Anyway, what you know, so that's a whole new model. We need new, innovative models to take care of our patients. And so, you know, he's a primary care, and he has a direct primary care model. So for, say, $50 a month, you not only get to see Dr. Josh as much as you need, but you get your meds. Yeah. And so he has, you can get, you know, your meds included in your $50 for, you know, it's penny is on the dollars a month. And they looked at a study. He's been really helpful um, on this. My colleagues that, you know, uh, Phil Eskew, who's a, an MD, JD, and we have so many smart and wonderful patient loving doctors that help us. And, and Josh has come down and helped us when we tried to get this through the legislature. But Look at this. Last year, think about your your Medicaid patients. I talked to them earlier. Texas spent $3.7 billion on 48 million prescriptions for Medicaid patients. And that came out to about $75 per prescription. Dr. Josh from Kansas, where physician dispense is legal, reports that in his group, they have five doctors and they dispensed like 22,000 23,000 prescriptions. And guess what their average price was? Well, $8 a yeah, prescription. Yeah, I was going to say, much less, 10%. You know, yeah. so come on. We, what are we doing? So I feel that it's almost our civic duty to fight for this and to do it. Physician dispense saves time and money for the patient. It reduces the error rate because, you know, I've had patients go to the pharmacy and I've written for them for a steroid and they substitute a non-steroidal. They, they substitute a whole nother class of meds or yeah. they substitute a generic. And then that, you know, tears up the eye. The patient comes in with eye pain or corneal burn. Um, you know, it increases adherence. There's better communication with the pa- patient, follow-up convenience. There's confidentiality. Um, mm-hmm. It's a way that we can work around drug shortages, the restricted formularies, the high cost. I mean, there's so many reasons that we should do this. It, it just would decrease, and it decreases, we talked about, the manpower and financial and resource drains. Um, right. You know, I don't want to re- run a retail pharmacy. If I would have wanted to, I'd become a pharmacist. But I want to get the meds that I order to my patients. And they can go wherever they want, but at least I'll have an option there for them so that, you know, if you're on call in the middle of the night, yeah. And how about when you're on call in the middle of the night, you know, and you want to be able to say, here's your, here's your two weeks of, of a antibiotic prescription or, 
or whatever it is. Um, there's just so many reasons we should do this. But, you know, I just, I'm afraid um, because I, I guess I've just been shot down so many times with this thinking, how could this not, how could they not fix this in the legislature? Yeah, because it, because their incentives are different, right? And that's the thing that's really yeah. hard as a physician, as someone who's a, an activist in whatever it might be, you see the, you see a logical explanation for why, or, or solution to things. And it's not seen that way in the legislature because they, you know, in leg- it's the politics is a zero sum game. I mean, I, I have a direct primary care doc and I was looking at some medications and, you know, I went to the pharmacy, got some meds from some other piece of, uh, someone else in my family. It was $60. And I asked my doctor, like, hey, how much would this be? And she said, it'd be $6. So it's exactly that 10% uh, right. ratio. Uh, and, and there's, it's clearly, it's clear, you know, when you look at the state laws and trying to move things through legislation, who you're. Uh, opponents are, and certainly making a radical change one way or the other is always difficult, right? You've got to, because whoever has the best interest in maintaining the status quo, they have the advantage because inertia is very powerful in the in government. And so you've run into the same thing when I was talking to Dr. Singh from North Carolina when he was trying to change the certificate of need laws, and then he turned to IJ just as you have, uh, because the legislative fixes just aren't there. So aside from saying, hey, this is not fair, which I totally agree, and but it's not it, that won't sway. It won't sway right. legislators for one thing, but also that's not an argument to make in court. So, what? Right, right. That's like the worst argument in court, actually. Uh, right. What exactly? Uh, what is the 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 legislature? Right. You can you tell me what's the legal strategy? How are you? What is your um? What is your basis for your claim and an argument for that? Why you should be able to dispense medications? You know, like they do in other states. So we feel that very clearly this is a constitutional issue. And the first thing is what I talked about, the irrationality. In Texas Constitution, you cannot have an irrational law. And, you know, if I'm a physician and I'm licensed by the state of Texas and I am the one treating, examining, diagnosing, and prescribing the medication of the patient, and I'm able to dispense it to them, hand it to them, dispense it to them for 72 hours. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm able, if they regard me as that safe and then we regard it, it's safe. I can give them samples. They regarded it safe that I could do it if my office was located in a different area. Right. Well then why wouldn't I be able to do it? I I think I'd even be safer closer to a hospital or, you know, it's, it doesn't make sense that the safety argument is, and, the, and the safety argument isn't there. And then the second issue is the protectionism. You, the Texas Pharmacy Board, they just came up and said, okay, we ban it. Doctors can't do that anymore. There, there's too much room for doctors to build the system. Or, you know, they, they, they say, oh, you're going to just, doctors are going to just overprescribe. You know, there are all these false um, yeah, sure. narratives. And yeah. I mean, there's bad players in anything. Mm-hmm. But so they came up with this. And then they put their, uh, their radius, 15 you know, mile radius around there. Well, you know, that's pretty protectionist. So now the only people, all of a sudden, they literally banned and stole our ability to dispense just like in a blink of an eye. And you can't get it back. You know, you lose your autonomy, you lose your ability to do something and you can't get it back. And um, that's very protectionist because it, there's, it does nothing but to give pharmacists all the ability. And if you look at what's happened, you know, the other thing 
in Texas and the Texas Medical Board. So it's the protectionism, the irrationality. But the other thing is you have to look at what's going on in the current climate. And right now in the current climate, when you go in and patients are told, you know, my dad went in the other day's 88 to get an over the counter, when he could have gotten over the counter. And they told him it was going to be like, you know, $600 for an antacid or something. Mm-hmm. And so he said, well, how about if I, he has Medicare and, he, and a secondary. And they said, well, if you use your insurance, it'll be 70. And then, you know, they, so they print out this little thing and, you know, Walgreens serving you since whatever, 1930, yeah, yeah. saving you so much. We saved you $600. Right. You know, come on. They didn't save him $600. That's a false, that's a markup, a discount game. All the money in between is being laundered. They should have told him to go over and buy it for $10 off the shelf. And he was smart enough to at least pull up on his phone for good RX. And I think he got it for $30. But it's a game. And my dad is 88. He doesn't need to do that. And I think that's dishonesty at the point of dispense at the pharmacy. Now, some states, well, and in some federal law, there's a gap. You know, for a while, they couldn't tell you that you could get it cheaper not using your insurance or that you could get a generic cheaper, or that you could get over the counter. Now they can. And we as patients and physicians need to, um, at the local level, at the state level, um, talk to, we need, we need to make these fixes. And now, uh, I'm, So, I mean, I guess I, so you're, to get back to legal strategy, you're initially going to start at the, so it's a, an argument at the state level, right? With the right. state con- so with the state Supreme Court or the, constitutional, right. it's a constitutional. So the constitutional issue is going to be that this is an irrational law, and and that's right. not allowed under the Texas Constitution. Is is that the only argument you have, or the protectionist? And you so there's a, a protection that just protects. You know, we talked I, about so a, economic. The, okay. Yeah, and you know, IJ is super. That's what they're about. Economic. Oh yeah, they know. And you cannot. That is not. They they have they have usurped and stomped on my economic liberty um, and, and the economic liberty of patients. It, it goes both ways to be able to choose to purchase their medications um, at the point of dispense. And, you know, I'm not going to be, I'm an ophthalmologist. So when, when there are companies out there for these other states that specialize in this. So, you know, whatever your specialty is, whether you're an OB-GYN or whether you're, a, you know, an internist or whatever, everybody's got maybe their top, 30 drugs that they prescribe. And, you know, most of your drugs you prescribe um, the majority of the time. So it may be that in my whole office, I have 10 medications. Right. Yeah. And so it's not, I don't want to take on a big economic burden. Each specialty, a urologist will have their top mm-hmm. 10. Yeah. You know, everybody will have their top 10. It's not like we're, the safety issue is not there. And who best to prescribe them than us and know all of the nuances of those medications and our patients. So um, I, it's the, it's the protectionist issue and uh, for economic liberty and um, the um, irrationality. And then I, you know, we'll see what else right now. We're, we're in that point where we filed the suit and now we're waiting for, you know, the pharmacy board and the medical board to gather all their information and expert witnesses and this sort of thing. So I'm hoping that by this summer, you know, things move so slowly. Oh yeah. I just want to be able to have my patients have this now. But you know, it's that as slowly as the, the, the justice system (laughs) rules, 
it's in some ways faster than the legislative system, right? I mean, you've you've banged your head against that wall for so long, yeah. uh, you know. In some ways, you're like, yes. boy, I wish I just started this process ten years ago. <laughs> right. But it, yeah. you know, there's definitely hope, and like you said, you talk to people who you think are are getting it, who are in the who are state legislators, and yet nothing happens, right? So, I want to yeah. go back to one of the things we talk you touched on real on earlier uh, with Medicare. Uh, you know, there's a there's a big push with a, especially with the democratic presidential field now for with the Medicare for all. And I think one of the things people don't recognize is that Medicare doesn't like pay for everything. It's not like everything's free Whoa. that patients still have to have an, a supplemental insurance. They still have to have other sort right. of care. And, and no one ever talks about it. I find it very unusual that no one ever mentions this. Everyone's like, Oh, everyone's real happy with Medicare. Well, yeah, but you know, there's different levels of Medicare, right? I mean, there's right. a straight flat Medicare. So what is, um, when it comes to Medicare with, say, cataracts, for instance, for one thing, if you get a cataract when you're 64, you're out of luck, right? If you don't have private insurance, because <laughs> for right. what, if you have cataract when you're too young, you're just, you know, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once you hit 65, you get Medicare, there's still an expectation for paying for things, right? I mean, it's not like it's totally free for these patients. Well, yes. And let me just tell you a couple of things, innovation as well. So Medicare, if you're, if you're 65 and now you're going to have your cataract out, they will not pay for the latest innovation and technology. So in cataract surgery, there are lens implants that we can put in that can correct your nearsightedness, your farsightedness, your astigmatism, give your near vision back. Medicare doesn't pay for that. You get plain Jane. So you have to pay out of pocket for that. So like for, so I, I knew I do cataracts, you know, what occasionally, so like a toric lens. So when they implant the toric lenses, right? Those are the, that's out of pocket. No insurance nor Medicare will pay for that. So and how much are those? They won't. Okay, so that so depending on the lens implant, that lens implant is going to cost at cost at cost a toric implant is probably five hundred dollars. Okay, a multifocal implant is probably nine hundred dollars. If you use the laser, if you do laser surgery, which is safer in some cases, mm-hmm. um, the laser is you know five hundred thousand. It costs you three hundred dollars a case to use it. Sure, um, Medicare doesn't cover that. There's technology that helps you really zero in on the, on the power of the lens called the aura and it's intraoperative aberometer that doesn't co- it doesn't cover that. Okay. So anybody who wants the newest technology has to pay for that all out of pocket. And you know, I, what I'm able to do with lower overhead is I'm able to offer all that for less than my colleagues that take all the insurance because their overhead's so much higher and they're having to do so much data collecting and reporting and, yeah you know, billing and coding and all this ICD-10 and all of this, you know, talk about irrational. <laughs> yeah, um, right. it, it's amazing. But, you know, back to what you were saying about the different parts of Medicare. Um, you know, when Medicare was created, there was A and B, the hospital part, and then B is the outpatient care and right. services. Clinic, yep. And it was, look, because cost was low back in 1965, the patient would pay Medicare, the government would pay 80% and the patient always had skin in the game. The patient would always pay 20%. But when, so when the costs are low, 20% is reasonable. You go in to have cataract surgery. If it costs $500, well, you pay 20% of $500. You, you know, you pay hundred dollars. Yeah, You've got skin in the game. So you care. Well, with all of this explosion of administrative and bureaucratic interference and third party, the, the costs and, and what they bill are so high that suddenly your 20% is a substantial number. Yeah. 
So now you don't just need your Medicare, you need a whole nother insurance. So now you're paying a whole nother premium. And guess what else? They started means testing Medicare. So you've worked all your life, everyone's put in. And now, because you saved, let's say you're retired now, but you've got some retirement coming in from an insurance policy or an investment, you'll own a rental trailer or something. You get means tested and you're going to pay way more Medicare premium plus a secondary than anyone else. So there are Medicare patients out there that are paying, you know, six, $700 a month premiums. Yeah. And a lot of people right now are living on only their social security. There's examples of people where, you know, their, their only income is that's more and more and more people as years go on. And as the Medicare cost goes up, there's some people that your, your, your Medicare and secondary and your insurance costs are going to take one, are going to be 100% of what you get from social security. Right. It's non-workable. And, um, you know, now fortunately, uh, President Trump had this executive order come out and thank goodness they decoupled part A from your social security. So what happened back under President Clinton? And I think it was just really to make people have to stay in Medicare. Um, they said, if you give up your part A, which is your hospitalization part, if you had good insurance, you turn 65, you have to go on Medicare. Because if you give up your part A, you forfeit your social security benefits. Now, can you imagine that? That is the way it is. So, so an executive order recently came out where president Trump said, Nope, that's uncoupled. So that's a good thing because you know, once if we could fix our system and we can, um, then you could choose on your 65th birthday to keep the plan you want. If you've saved up and you have a, a large health medical or medical savings account and, and you have a big catastrophic plan and you saved up, you could stay on that plan and then you'd still get your social security yeah. and, and that would work. But you know, Medicare for all is Medicare for none because if you read every one of them, you know, paragraph one, everybody gets Medicare for all. Everything's covered. No co-pays, nothing. Paragraph two, all private insurance is now yeah, right. unlawful. Well, and it, and I think, you know, the fact that there's this ambiguity as far as what Medicare is, is a lot of what leads to the disparities in cost estimates. I mean, partly is, you know, depends, people try and make estimates of what actual cost of care will happen if, you know, there's this one payer, blah, blah, blah. But that's why you get the $3 trillion price tag and then a $6 trillion. It's a, there's a huge yeah. disparity. And I think part of it is just, you know, because how do you calculate exactly what Medicare for all really means? Well, it's been a delightful discussion. I, I appreciate you um, taking time to tell us about the dispensering. And, you know, best of luck in your court case. I know it'll, I mean, <laughs> probably check you. in you a year from now. <laughs> we, you maybe just have, uh, maybe you'll had a trial at that point, hopefully, if you've been found to have standing, because that's always the other thing, right? The, prevent you from that's showing the thing. standing. Yeah, I think we'll find out, you know, if we have standing, I guess that'll be, that's going to be coming next. Yeah. So hopefully uh, we'll hear something. Yeah. Thank what's you a good so way? much. Oh yeah. You're welcome. What's a good way for people to follow what you're up to? Cause you don't just, you know, talk about dispensing medications. I know you're active in other places. Right. Like, where are you in Twitter? Where do you, do you write a okay. lot? I do. Well, yeah. So a couple of neat things this year, this year, um, and this is separate from everything we've talked about, but I'm, this is a great year for me. I'm, I'm president of a a wonderful group called the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. And so um, you can follow aapsonline.org. And, and we have a lot of resources for patients. Our motto is all for the patient. And that's a great place to get information. I'm on Twitter uh, uh, and I post a lot of medical and healthcare stuff. And my Twitter on Twitter, I'm Chris Held MD. It's at KKS Held. 
And I have a blog. It's chrisheldmd.wordpress.com. And then um, I told you we're just getting up, re-updating re our, our uh, website for our, our practice. And I'd love to see anybody um, and, and talk to them online or, um, you know, through any of those um, virtual ways because this is important stuff. And, and it needs to be patients and doctors uh, trying to fix this, this, these problems. Well, thanks again. Uh, all the, the links to these uh, sites that you mentioned and uh, prior episodes that I referenced and that you talked about, I've talked about direct primary care so much you wouldn't believe it, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, um, all this would be at theparadox.com. That's D-O-C-S uh, slash 066. Again, Dr. Hill, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great night. You Bye-bye. too. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. <laughs>